0: Welcome to the Appen Admin, Appen Admin podcast, episode eighty-one, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John, and I'm Jerry. In this episode, we talk about the fully automated installation system FAI.
1: We'll talk a bit about Kubernetes,
2: and we also talk about our recent projects. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show.
0: Hello, we're back again. And I'm actually on the podcast for once. We've been kind of, haven't had a podcast for, well, a couple of months or so. So, um, yes, we thought we'd better do one again. So, what have people been up to? Jerry? what have you been up to lately?
2: Um, Well, I've just been uh, carrying on with my usual investigations. I've been doing uh, some stuff with Kubernetes uh, or a... a, uh, A kind of Kubernetes, easy-peasy Kubernetes install, um, which we'll possibly talk about later.
0: Is that for your current job?
2: This is actually so I can get Kubernetes running in my house. Okay. Um, And it seems to be the easiest way of doing it. How about you, John?
1: I've been doing all sorts of bits and pieces. Uh, I I spent the bulk of uh, the last couple of days re-imaging my laptop so that my wife can use it for work. Um, (laughs) Which is a novel putting windows back on there is uh yeah it's all sorts of weirdness particularly for me who, who pretty much builds everything as linux first i've been playing about with getting ansible tower working again so i've got some i've got some nice commits to my git repo uh, in doing ansible tower things and uh, i've been playing also a little bit with kubernetes not lots but i've been doing a little bit with kubernetes so so it'll be interesting to see how, how our conversation goes about best about that later on how about you and what have you been up to
0: I've been offered a new job, which is quite good.
1: Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Uh, my current job is okay. It's good. But um, they're sending me around the country quite a lot. And with my current life situation, it's not ideal. When I was a younger man, it was fine. But I'm doing so much on-prem stuff. And I want to really get into the whole DevOpsy kind of thing. So I've got a DevOps engineer job uh, for a Windows platform. So it's basically working with DevOps, with Azure stuff. They're currently got CI. They're CI DI is it C I their, their um their building platform. C I C D. Yeah, that's it. Is currently on prem um building their platform using um ARM templates, but they wanna to go to the Azure DevOps, so that and they wanna start using Kubernetes. So uh, that's what I'll be kind of doing in my day job. Um so I'm really looking forward to that. It's gonna be a good bit of a challenge and uh, and I think they're going to be using. I'm not used to working with like, is it sprints and stuff you do? Agile. Yeah. I'm not, I'm never, I mean, at the moment, I basically get booked out for days for a project for like eight days or no, we can, minimum we can be booked out for half a day. So um, I think that's going to be uh, a new kind of, uh, f- for me anyway. So uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to doing all that kind of thing. So I start in a couple of weeks' time. So I'm hoping with this, with the whole coronavirus, it won't, um, it won't affect it, but um, yeah, we're going <laughs> yeah. I mean, I've basically been told that one reason I want to get this job is I want to actually be working back in an office, uh, but they've actually the new companies have been told that everyone can be working from home. <laughs> so it's not actually going to change my uh, my situation. But apart from that, um, I've been setting up my NAS um, with SnapBraid and MergeFS, um, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. Um, it kind of took my head, get my head around it, um, how SnapBraid works, because no one really ex- kind of explained... How stat Raid works. Uh, it's really good kind of bit of technology. It's you have to have like a minimum of three discs, and um, when you write data to one of the discs, uh, you have to have the, the like the parity disc has to be the biggest drive out of the out of the whatever drives you've got, and um, it uses basically if you've got one disc, um, I've basically got one disc as my photos and my second disc as my uh, videos and everything, and you basically run this snap braid command and it basically does calculate the parity and um basically puts the parity on the fourth di- on the third disk and so if you lose a disk um you can just put the disk back in and run it with the par- fix the parity and it will basically it will rework out the parity for you so yeah it works really well and then there's merge fs as well with basically just so you've got one mount point and if you got like you have a mount point for data and then it will map to the the extra discs you've got built in, so that's a really good little thing on on there working because it's with obviously RAID and stuff you've you've got it makes it all the time and um, when it obviously when you write a bit of data it then obviously makes a parity off. But with, with SnapRAID, snap RAID, it basically just it only works at the parity when you run the command. So if it's only going to be static like photos and videos, that's not going to change much so that's what happened i actually, i think it might be actually you have to have a minimum of four disks um yeah i think at the minimum of four disks you have to have three disks for data and then one disk for the uh, parity and the parity has to be the biggest disk um yes and also it does like a weekly check you can make it to run so you can check for like bit rot and everything so it's quite it's a quite good little tool for managing data which doesn't change um, and then on top of that, um, obviously we had Stuart on last month regarding the Phenix install and he's been really helpful with me. I mean, I was asking on there about um, all these emails I get every day about what updates need to be applied, if my R snapshots have been working, my backups have been working. So between the two of us, we've been working out this nice little um, dashboard. I put a link in the show notes to it. Um, but I managed to get things like my PS Sense box running towards it so that I can get my data out of it. It shows me like what the current download is, how long it's been up for... But then the good things, what I've worked out is like you can have a... So I have this dashboard now. So whenever I bring up my um, Firefox in the morning, it's the first thing that comes up and you can kind of see what's going on. So I've basically got the scripts now, which replaces the e- emails. So like things like, it will tell me things like if there are any packages required installed. Like I can see my NAS needs 13 and my VPS requires two. And it also shows you if any of them are security updates. And it also shows you if it is how many, if it needs a reboot. And then on top of that, I've got like eight little green boxes. And each of them is a, which is basically monitoring what I was getting on emails so it will go red if it failed. So what I've got is on each of my hosts, which I'm running this, like say got my website config backup, it runs that script. Instead of emailing it to me, I will say it. It basically puts an output of a one or a zero into a, into a, into a text file, which what Node Explorer will then basically pick up, and then will get put into Phanethius. Um, but then I put my data into Grafana, is that right? Mm-hmm. That's running in a Docker container, and that basically pulls that information, and it basically says if it's a one, it goes green. If it's a zero, it shows it red. So I've got eight boxes. I've got one. What does my website config backup? Um, the R snapshot. My SQL backups worked, and my Snapraid daily syncs working, and my Snapraid weekly scrub. Also got there. It also shows you. How long my SSL's expired for as well, so it will check my certificate and it will tell me if my Let's Encrypt certificate when it how long it's going to expire for, and the and also as well which I, I was mentioning about is how do I monitor the the healthiness of the disk? So um, there's a plugin, there's a script I found on the um, Penetius GitHub which basically checks the smart details and that basically then pulls that information into a dashboard what someone created and I basically just pulled that information into my dashboard so I can just have a look at this one dashboard now which basically shows everything I need without so now I'm not getting like 20 emails and I might, might, I might not miss it so yeah I'd like to thank you Stuart for the helping out getting that kind of dashboard working because it saved me a bit of time really.
2: Is there any code for this online for any of the stuff you've done Al?
0: Well I can put the screenshots and I can basically put the node what I think it's called Node Checker or a file checker or something. So they're basically little scripts that basically um, runs and then curates the the information what Node Explorer picks up okay. and then puts into um, Grafana.
2: Yeah, so Node Node Explorer is uh, what Prometheus kind of queries. Um, Prometheus sends a, a you know transmission or or whatever, uh, and then. No, the node responds with node exporter um responds with various metrics and and data basically, and then Grafana queries Prometheus to put that all on the dashboard. Is that right? <laughs>
0: yes. I'm just saying what the, the there's a node explorer which basically yeah it, which checks files and then also there's an SSL thing I can't remember what it's called but that basically just checks. The SSL basically does checks for things like open TCP ports and everything.
2: Mm. Cool. Yeah, I I need to get Prometheus running. In fact, it's the reason I, well, it's part of the reason I uh, was experimenting with Kubernetes, um, which is something something we were going to talk about. Um, So I've been using K3s uh, as a way of easily running Kubernetes on a kind of single. Um, server that I've got so previously all the kind of installation uh, the ways of installing Kubernetes required at least three separate machines so they can be VMs and they sit on a single machine but you have to run the VMs in the first place and sort all that out whereas this uh, K3S which is what I've been playing with um, is just a single binary and you Stick it on a, an existing Linux server. So I'm just using Ubuntu as the base OS, uh, and then you you hit you pretty much hit go, and you've got a working Kubernetes cluster. And actually, you, you can also do that on other physical machines uh, and do some some kind of uh, join join these two together, and you get an, in, an instant multi-machine Kubernetes cluster, which is pretty cool. <laughs>
1: You saying about the K3S thing, uh, I actually did some, a bit of playing around with that probably about, about, well, under a month ago. And I stuck a a Git repo up with uh, a Vagrant file that I've got that installs K3S. uh, And that install is just in in the sort of the equivalent of the user data um, or cloud in it sort of style thing. Uh, But it literally just installs the bits that you need to install K3S. And then there's, uh, so one of the things about um, Kubernetes is is that you've got this kind of implicit load balancer thing that uh, when you deploy to something like AWS or Azure or or, um, Google cloud, when you, so for those that don't do Kubernetes stuff, and I've, I have to admit, I haven't done a great deal with it, but what you typically do is you expose stuff on a load balancer port and a load balancer port basically means that wherever on your cluster, your Kubernetes application is run from uh, this this load balancer it effectively sits across all of your nodes in the cluster and knows where to route the application to mm. so it means you're not having to manually set up something like um, traffic or something like that but the load balancer port in Azure AWS Google Cloud and such forth um those all assume that you've got the native platform's load balancer in, the, in that environment. yeah. Uh, which obviously, if you're doing Kubernetes just on a single machine, you don't have that load balancing there.
2: So Kubernetes, Kubernetes will talk to the cloud providers API to actually bring up a load balancer uh, resource.
1: Correct. So the problem you have when you're running that on a virtual machine or a physical machine on, on-prem is that if you define... A load balancer port um, effectively what it does is you have to manually do the load balancing piece yourself so you have to tell the load balancers where your machine is that's running that service what i found as a way around that in fact it wasn't me it was one of my colleagues a great guy called nick uh, he actually found um a thing called metal lb and metal LB is just so when you run kubectl to do apply or whatever, you just do kubectl apply and then it's a path to a git repo uh, on GitHub. Um, and that stands up a metal load balancer. And what that effectively does is it tells all your, all your Kubernetes nodes that um, they're also, they've also got this load balancer thing in there but it's done as it's done almost like as a as a container that runs on all of your nodes in your cluster and it does the load balancing across all the all the nodes for you so it's quite quite smart really if you've then got something like traffic or something sitting behind that traffic will work with that metal lb as well Um, but it just gives you that that last little leg if you if you don't have something like metal lb in place creating a load a load balancing port is just like creating a node port. Um, so it just exposes the port on the local host uh, on the on the um, the zero 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 address on that host. What LB does is it'll do it that way. So you expose the port on all the on all the nodes. But you can also tell it to go and um, update BGP on an upstream router um, and route. Uh, an IP pool to the interface on to the cluster and it will update it with the slash 32s for each of the nodes that have been assigned the load balancer addresses stuff like that. It's quite, really quite smart, really quite, quite impressive, but just from a p- sort of basic perspective, just, just doing that cube CTL apply metal LB will just turn your load balancing across all your nodes.
2: I've actually just done just done that just now and literally <laughs> uh, took a couple of seconds.
1: And the other thing you mentioned was that you can, with K3S um, you can stand two nodes up uh, and it'll automatically provision itself. Yeah. Um, what I actually did was um, when I wrote, I wrote like a little script for deploying K3S in, um, in this Git repo um, and one of the things that it does, he says, trying to find the actual thing, is um, I wrote a little script called uh, Use Public IP or Use Pub IP, and literally what that does is it runs the install on the first node, but it populates the information into the Vagrant directory for second and subsequent nodes. Right. So you can use Vagrant to bring up like three or four Kubernetes nodes in one hit. Right. But you should also be able to see from that how you would how you would deploy uh, a kubernetes cluster with k3s Hm.
2: I'd, I'd like to use that I've got um so one of the things I want to do in my house is to start using plex again to play videos on TV hmm but you can use multiple uh, nodes or multiple pods to do the transcoding so mm-hmm. it's like you you add another machine and you've it should load balance across any k3s node that you bring up that was one of the cool. things I wanted to try out.
1: Fair enough. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the absolute basis, basic rather, of the K3S multiple node thing is you just need two variables. Ooh. K3S URL, which is HTTPS colon slash slash. And then the IP address of your node, the, your master node, colon 6443. Um, and then on the master node, there's a node token. Yeah. So you specify that as k3s underscore token, um, and then you run the same install thing, but you tell it to use those k3 that k3s URL and the k3s token. Mm. So the script knows that there's a master server there for it to use, mm. and it just goes away and sorts itself out. Yeah, it's quite cool.
2: There's quite a few things that I would, I would I would like to bring them up in Kubernetes just to find out how, how you do it. Not necessarily because that's the easiest way to do it, but <laughs> just yeah. To- it's, like, it's things like um, mounting a pod with NFS, which I've never done before in previous Kubernetes experience I've had. But it'd be useful to know how to do that. You can yeah. actually do things like have um, persistent volumes, which are in Kubernetes parlance. So they're like, um, well, they're exactly what they say, um, a volume that when the, the pod is destroyed and recreated, the data stays there. Normally, with it, it would be it would go with the pod, like any data that the pod generated or whatever, um, would be gone when the pod was destroyed. But you can do that over NFS, which is quite seems quite um, interesting.
1: One of the things that I was looking at with regards to that, um, and I didn't get very far, uh, but I've briefly looked at this in the past, is that there's a, a set of Kubernetes deployment scripts for a thing called Rook. Uh, mm. as in the bird Rook. Um, and what Rook will let you do is it will deploy your cross-cluster persistent storage volumes using things like Ceph.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: So for those that don't know what Ceph is, Ceph is effectively like multi-machine RAID. So data isn't written to one machine or one disk on one machine. It's written to multiple disks, on multiple machines, usually with, um, again, some sort of parity, something like that. So it's almost like something like SnapRaid or ZFS or something like that, but it's, it's across multiple machines. Mm. And as you scale out the environment, your Ceph environment scales out with it. And, in fact, it's part of the storage, the recommended storage, I think, for OpenStack and things like that. So it's quite it's quite cool. But the fact that you can run it in this thing called Rook just means that, again, the the script that I, I think... The script I initially wrote. Does that do Rook as part of it? I think I got part way down the route of of running Rook, and then realised that I it was kind of I was starting to um, just add more and more features to this script that was just literally supposed to have been this is how I'm going to run K3s. Yeah. Uh, <laughs>
0: so going back to K3s and, and Kubernetes. So what is the point of running for someone who doesn't know what Kubernetes is? What is the run? the point of running um kubernetes mm. cuz the way i thought of it was that well i'm really done much with kubernetes that what's my, my, my first thing i need to start looking into um is that if you want to run multiple containers or multiple containers over multiple hosts so you can you can facilitate a a, a host failure i might be wrong
2: it's pretty much uh, what you're saying about multiple uh multiple hosts uh running containers over multiple hosts and so on that's a big part of it i mean kubernetes i think is not something to be taken lightly i would say something like docker uh, docker compose is is an easy way to um look at containers and you start using containers Uh, kubernetes has lots of good features but it's much more complicated Uh, at least initially it's kind it's kind of a a steep learning curve, as they say.
1: Yeah, I would, I would definitely concur with that. I mean, there's a there's a, an article that I came across, which I think I think I was talking to you guys about before the show uh, about um, uh, something. This, this, the article was called "Let's Use Kubernetes Now You Have Eight Problems." Kubernetes was effectively what what Google uses to run all of their deployments, and it assumes that you've got. At least a quite a a reasonably complex environment you want to manage. Kubernetes does automation of container deployments, and it does orchestration of container deployments. So it will deploy containers on multiple hosts, and it will manage things like if you want to roll from version um, one to version two of a container, it's Relatively straightforward command to do it. You basically just update your, um, your kubectl YAML file with the next version and say, can you just update this? And it will go out and it will stage, it will manually scale up and scale down your version one deployment set and your version two deployment set. So it will scale up version two and at the same time scale down version one until you get to zero. Containers running in, sorry, they call them pods, but you get zero pods running in your version one and, say, five of your version two pods running. I mentioned before about load balancing. So Kubernetes, uh, like Docker, has a way, you basically have to receive traffic into Kubernetes. And both Kubernetes and Docker will expose ports on their local machine. But Kubernetes also has this... um, concept of uh, a proxy so you can tell it to proxy certain traffic certain ways which you can't do with docker you have to kind of manually have another thing that sits there that does that proxying and then if you want to if if you've got containers running across multiple virtual machines you then need to load balance across those virtual machines docker doesn't do that docker swarm does but with the sale of docker Enterprise edition to another company that is a Kubernetes house. I suspect that Docker Swarm will start to go away. Although they're committed not to for their enterprise customers, because they won't, because that's the reason why they bought Docker Enterprise rather than Kubernetes. But certainly I think I think there you'll start to see perhaps less Docker Swarm and more Kubernetes. Possibly. Another thing that Kubernetes does. Is it has this concept of secrets, which I don't think Docker does. So you add a secret into the, the cluster as part just in the same. So when you define a um, Kubernetes thing that you want to run, you have these series of APIs that you call. And one of the APIs you can call is the secrets API. So you can store and retrieve secrets from. Kubernetes with that as well. So you might do things like you might have passwords for your MySQL service or your Microsoft SQL service or your Postgres SQL service. You might have a common Prometheus credential. I don't know if I don't, I've not had a proper poke at Prometheus. I've not had a chance to, but you might have a, a common LDAP credential you want to use or something like that. Those are things that you can store in Kubernetes secrets that you can't do that stuff with Docker. But because it's got all these extra features, it's got more complexity.
2: Most of the time, you're writing these YAML files, which will communicate with the APIs. You're basically pushing this um, data in the form of a YAML file at the APIs, Mm. the various different APIs that Kubernetes presents to do certain things. So that's how basically how you're interacting with it, which is... Uh, it's quite a bit different from other things that you may have done as a, as an admin, for instance, you know, it's quite, a, it's quite a different way of working.
1: As, as many of you, dear listeners will know we're not, we're not sponsored by anyone. Um, but work gives me access to things like Pluralsight. And actually there's some, there's um, three really good courses on Site about a deep dive on Docker, a deep dive on Kubernetes and a big picture view on both of those they're all done by the same guy and and actually i spent like three or four days watching this whole series of these sort of three sets of videos and was then able to condense those three sets of videos down to a sort of management elevator pitch style slide deck that I did was able to deliver internally. I, I can't, obviously I can't share that outside, but I was able to deliver this slide deck internally in about an hour just to kind of give them an overview as to how Docker works, how Kubernetes works and kind of where the differences are between the two of them. Um, I didn't go into much detail about the stuff outside of just running containers because that's all that they're really looking for at the moment. But the the way that the two systems are architected is Subtly different. I mean, aside from anything else, I've mentioned one thing that's there, which is in Docker you have containers, in Kubernetes you have pods. And a pod will contain at least one container, but may contain many more. And there's reasons why you'd have that. But it it means that the two systems are, they're not dissimilar, but they've got different purposes. I think that's probably the best way of describing it.
2: I would agree with that. Yeah, you might use Docker to construct the containers, which you then put into Kubernetes.
1: You have to. You have to construct the containers in Docker for Kubernetes.
2: I mean, oh, it could be Podman or so. You know, the CentOS, Red Hat kind of alternative. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of the it's designed to be in interchangeable and kind of compartmentalised. That compatible, yeah something beginning with com.
1: Comparable systems, maybe. Yeah. Anyway, as I said, you would tend to see Kubernetes deployed at scale. You know, if you're running an application that needs to be able to scale out across multiple machines, you're more likely to be looking at Kubernetes for that. And what I am seeing more and more is kind of people saying that the scaling problem is not really the sort of problem that anyone outside of, like Amazon or Google, are really typically going to hit, particularly on their very early deployments. So people that are jumping in straight away to Kubernetes because it's the thing that you need to run is probably approaching the problem wrong. Mm. You know, if your application is needs to scale out across five machines, you may as well run five virtual machines running Docker than uh, being able to scale out your cluster of Kubernetes nodes to five machines and then contract that down again afterwards, unless you need the fact that it can automatically move between machines. But then if you, if your machine can't handle that move anyway, you're probably not architecting it right in today's kind of way of architecting applications anyway.
2: But there is this thing that with more and more places running Kubernetes, it's kind of the common language. So deployments more, you know, Kubernetes deployments exist and. Than- than a lot of other things. I mean, mm. it's not it's not strictly true, really. But with, with so many places using Kubernetes, maybe they, maybe that is a thing. Not sure.
1: I don't know. I mean, again, I'm, I'm approaching things from a, a very theoretical point at the moment. You know, I I don't tend to work in an operational environment anymore, so I'm more looking at kind of the the, the longer term picture with things like this, which always freaks me out because it's not really the kind of way that my head's wired anyway but you know i'm looking more at kind of the 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 practical reasons why you might or might not do something so i haven't really looked at how other places do things i suppose so Mm. anyway i'm waffling on a bit about this now (laughs) (laughs) so um, how have you been youtubing then i have i have so i again on plural site i came across a video Recorded by another podcaster that I listened to, a guy called Chris Harches, who's a, he works for Mozilla, but he does, he was, he, he's been known for several years as being the guy that endorses sort of test driven development in PHP. And there was a, a, a thing on Plural site showing a guy sitting down next to him and asking him to go through a task, effectively doing like a mentoring style video. Um, and I was, I was looking. Across kind of the other things that I've, I've watched on YouTube, um, particularly around, you know, stuff like Kubernetes, Vagrant, Ansible, all these things. And whilst there are videos out there explaining how to do these things, I was struggling to find them kind of. They all either assumed that you knew absolutely nothing or they assumed you knew. Everything, and you're just looking for kind of what the difference was between the last version and this version. Or, you know, y- you're an expert at Python and this is how you do it in PHP or you're an expert at uh, Technology X and here's how you translate that to Technology Y. And I, I, I wanted to find something that, you know, if, if I was sat down, uh, very similar to kind of how I approach this podcast, to be fair, but, you know, if I was sitting down with somebody in a pub and they said, how do you do this thing? I'd pull out my laptop and I'd run through the things with them there. Um, and I kind of wanted to do a YouTube video a bit like that. So, yeah, so uh, I set up a virtual machine uh, and uh, I ran OBS, uh, which is the Open Broadcast System or Open Broadcast Studio. I can't remember, one or the other. Um, and I ran OBS uh, recording my interactions with that virtual machine, initially just doing um, uh, a vagrant uh, Ansible and, uh, in deployment with literally just a hello world. And, you know, what services are this, is this machine running? Um, with the intention being that I'd then go on and do things like, you know, much more in-depth walkthroughs of how I create a, an Ansible playbook, how I create a, um, you know, a vagrant machine with multiple n- nodes in it or how I would deploy, you know, a Terraform environment with, you know, five virtual machines or, uh, an AWS and an Azure environment or something. I, that was kind of, that's where I want to go with it. Um, but so uh, I discovered that uh, I can't do one take uh, recordings like I can with you guys. It's actually really hard to do OBS recordings and make them come out. Right. Having published the first one uh, just to a few select members of the uh, admin, admin podcast, telegram group. I was told that the rec- first recording I'd made was incredibly laggy. And so it didn't work. So I scrapped that and started again and uh, having published it to YouTube, then uh, Alan Pope, uh, Popey, um, suggested that it might be an idea to publish uh, that video into um, another system. So not just uh, YouTube, but it's also on a system called Library, which is something similar to Peertube. Uh, it's like YouTube, but it's based around blockchain so uh, for me to claim the channel name, John the Nice Guy, I needed to put some of my uh, library tokens, LBRY tokens, to register that name. And then every video I upload, I also have to re- uh, up, uh, add credits to upload it. But when you first get started on the platform, you, can, you get a certain number of credits for joining, and you get a certain number of credits for watching videos, and you can tip people and it's because it's a blockchain thing you can buy credits and the other thing that they do as well is they they make it very easy to create content on youtube and import that into library and publish content to library and import that content into youtube so there's there's quite a lot of that there it's very alpha software uh, so there are definitely some bugs in it it's all based around a time zone that is not UTC based. Uh, so when it says, you know, have you watched the watch X number of videos a day? Uh, it means based on the zero, zero in that time zone, not in UTC, which throws me every time. And I'm like, I've, I've watched, I've watched three videos today. It's like, Nope, Nope, Nope. You've claimed that one already. Ah, damn it. But yeah. So, um, so I did that video. Uh, my plan is to do some more. Uh, it's got, got quite a lot of traction uh, with people at work as well which is nice as well but yeah so that's what i've been up to it's been good fun actually have either of you tried recording youtube videos no i mean i i don't
2: really watch youtube videos for information it's, it's strange um i guess it, it was frowned upon at a previous place where i worked to watch any kind of videos so i i never have i tend to read read pages and and that kind of thing which to be fair is what i would what how i started in it is you know learning stuff that way um yeah i don't tend to even watch videos um.
0: i mean youtube i use loads for work and stuff i mean the tutorials on there yeah really good kind of thing when you want to find something out and i kind of find easier to watch something than rather reading something kind of thing my mind will why my if i have to read a blog my mind will stop Wondering where I can watch a video and it kind of goes in a lot easier.
2: I can see it probably, maybe if I'd started later or something, I I might have started watching videos instead of reading, reading how to's and stuff.
1: I think the main thing for me is it was when Reggie uh, from the coolest nerds in the room podcast was guesting with us. Um, And he was talking about how he was recording stuff for Instagram because he was seeing more people, younger people, Look into Instagram for kind of advice and guidance and direction. And I don't disagree. I will tend to get most of my content in a, in a written format. And I, I've, I've struggled with finding videos that think the way that I do. It's not necessarily a bad thing because I think I'm a bit odd in the way that I approach things. But what I wanted to do was I figure I've written blog posts. I've had a blog for, Well, 20 years in one form or another, and the content in there is approachable, but they tend to be quite long form videos, uh, quite long form stories almost. You know, I'll, I'll walk you through all of the things that I did to get from point A to point B. And what I really kind of think I need to do is start working out how to transition that into a more visual format, particularly because what I want to do is start teaching people more how to do things. It's not necessarily about doing them anymore. It's about teaching other people how to do them. I don't necessarily want to get into training, but I do want to get more into mentoring. And I think that this is a good way of starting that, basically. It's not necessarily my be all and end-all, end-story, but it's, it's a good way of approaching stuff. Possibly. Maybe.
0: We have a question, haven't we, in front of our listeners from um, our wonderful Telegram channel. Um, from Yannick, he says, it's like this could be a, f- a subject for a future show. Setting up a secure access to your home network, the best way, sorry, the bad way, the better way, and the best way. So, how do people access their home networks remotely?
1: Well, surely you just open up Telnet to, to the world and uh, everyone can just Telnet in and, you know, HTT- FTP into your home network, pull all your files out that way. That's that's the, the best way, sure, yeah. surely.
2: I I just leave ports 137 and 139 open so I can mount sam- my Samba shares from anywhere naturally, on the internet.
1: Naturally, that's a perfect way of doing it.
2: I think we're being a bit facetious there. Aren't we're we?
1: being <laughs> exceptionally facetious there. I come from a network security background. I tend to be reasonably paranoid about what stuff I have open to the internet. That's not to say that I'm as paranoid as some of the people I've spoken to, who also are very reasonable in what they do. But I tend to have a single SSH port open on my home network uh, that is not on the standard SSH port and can SSH into that with public-private key pairs only. But I know that's not really necessarily the best way of doing things. I know there are better ways of doing things, but it's the easiest lowest friction way that I've found to do things how about you guys what do you guys do at the moment and then we'll talk about what the better ways could be afterwards perhaps
2: uh, I my remote access apart from in the very early days has always been SSH um, It's pre- I, I think it's pretty good because you can kind of piggyback other services on o- over SSH as long as you're well you can do it with multiple things using multiple ports but if Works best with something a service that uses a single port that you can just um, forward that over SSH. So I, I think SSH is pretty versatile, but obviously something like OpenVPN or WireGuard would be the would seem to be the other way to do it.
0: At home to get into my home network, I got a pfSense box on the boundary of my router, of my network, and I use OpenVPN on that and it's really simple to set up on PSNs so I can't, I'll put a link in the show notes but there's like a guide which you can do It basically generates all the certificates for you and I can basically then I've configured it so that it, on my phone and my laptop is that whenever I'm remote I can then either do it so that it just routes my traffic so if I wanted to basically be like on to look like I'm coming from home um, like if I'm at work and I want to look, look at stuff, which is normally blocked by the... F- or you're somewhere like in the coffee shop, um, I can use that to route all my traffic through. So it looks like I'm in my home address. Or if I just want to access something on my home network, like my Plex, or look at like my monitoring dashboard, then I can just connect to my one which just routes basically my home subnet. So yeah, and it works really well because with the, with the PF Sense... When you connect, it basically puts your DNS settings as your PS Sense box, and then I've, it will. You can then route to everything by name, which is really good. And then the other thing is for my VPSs, I have got um, WireGuard set up so that I can then access them by um, a, by by what by WireGuard, and then obviously on a a private IP address, so that I haven't got to worry about where I am in the world or you can just connect to it via that. So there are my two ways I'm currently connecting at the moment.
2: Just a quick shout out for PyVPN, um, which is a, an implementation of OpenVPN um, designed for Raspberry Pi, but you can run it obviously on any Linux machine. And it's just it, it is a kind of wizard-based thing which will really easily let you set up ovpn files which are the files that the clients need to get into the vpn it's a few um commands and kind of really easy to follow and yeah so i just wanted to mention that for for the ease of uh, setting up an OpenVPN server
1: from from my side of things um when i was looking at standing up vpns in the past i previously uh ran a streisand node well, Streisand V virtual machine, to be fair, um, on my home server. And StriZen is a set of Ansible scripts that you run against a virtual machine. They've designed it to run it on things like DigitalOcean or Azure, places like that. But I ran it against uh, a Vagrant virtual machine. And it will configure Tor, Shadowsocks, uh, OpenVPN, OpenConnect, uh, which is like the Cisco AnyConnect or Juniper Pulse Secure VPN. It'll run WireGuard. It'll run uh, Ikev2. It'll run OpenVPN, and it'll run SSH tunneling as well. So you get kind of all of these environments in one in one script. So if you are looking for lots of different ways to set a VPN up then you could definitely do worse than looking at Streisand. It is quite complicated because there's lots and lots of VPNs it produces. But if you wanted to look and see kind of what the different, if you wanted to be able to run, say, for example, an environment on your, if you wanted to see what the speed differences were like, for example, or if you were going to an environment where you didn't know what traffic was going to be allowed through a proxy uh, or a, a firewall at a venue, then it might be worth running a Streisand node somewhere just to be able to allow all of these different traffic flows through and then work out which one was the best one for you from that. So that's the better way. Weirdly, I think the best way really is actually IPsec uh, because IPsec is built into all operating systems more or less since Windows XP and onwards. Uh, it's built into all the all the phone operating systems. Uh, it's built into every version of Linux. Well, it's built into every version of Linux. Uh, it's built into every version of OSX since sort of the... Well, every version of OSX, every version of Linux since about 2000, have all had an IPsec layer available to them. So from a cross-platform perspective, IPsec's probably your best bet, and that's a really strong contender particularly if you want to have your split tunneling where you're just you know exposing a specific network and having everything else going over the over the public internet or if you want to send everything to your down, your, down to your VPN and out again then so much the better but obviously Ike. Uh, V1 has now been replaced with Ike version 2. The predominant reasons for that is that I think um, Ike V2 uh, is much better at handling network address translation. Uh, it's much easier to set up f- because it's less complicated around uh, negotiating encryption and hashing technologies. So it's it's much smoother, but you haven't got the native clients built into the operating systems so for example it's not on android at all i don't think it's on ios either so you have to install an additional application to allow v 2 the operating system desktop operating systems have all support v 2 but if you're having to have a separate vpn uh, so you can't run Ike V1 and Ike V2 on the same machine, as far as I'm aware, uh, which means that if you're going to pick something that you want your phone to be able to use and your laptop, then you need to go with ikev one or you need to have a separate technology for your phone and for your laptop. So in that case, I would pick Ike V2 for your laptop and then something else for your phone. Uh, and I would probably look at WireGuard or OpenVPN. I Don't trust OpenVPN that much just because uh, for the Windows version, the network interface driver historically had a lot of issues. And it's because it's not built into the kernel as well. Uh, Whereas um, IPsec and WireGuard are, or will be, I should say with WireGuard, will be built into the kernel. OpenVPN is much slower than ipsec and wireguard i think wireguard is just starting to it will pip the speeds for the other vpn products but the ones that are built into the kernel are naturally going to be faster is there anything there that i appear to have missed
0: no i but go back to openvm i've never had a problem with openvpn on windows or linux so i've never had any problem with connecting it and stuff
1: Uh, to be fair i think the times when i did was maybe between five and ten years ago
0: yeah i mean yeah with the windows once you get it working it's fine i mean i had a problem i think when you look at is it a network manager in on linux like on ubuntu by default it's not installed but when you go to add it it says it is but you have to basically install it um by app get install kind of thing and then it it works kind of thing. So that always that always bugs me when you when you get a new laptop. I think, oh, yeah, let's configure that. And then I'll, uh, network manager says you can do it. But, no, you need to install it.
1: I don't think that's the case with 1804 because, as I said, I've recently re-imaged my 1804 laptop. And the NAS that I have at home uh, does provide a set of VPN products. So my intention had been before I i took it away with me was to actually set the vpn stuff up um and i set up about four different all, all the different vpn products that are available on this nas i tried setting them all up and blow me none of them worked but it did mean that i had to go and install all these vpn packages into linux because the only one that was there was uh, pptp uh which it should be generally yeah so that's the worst way. Um don't use PPTP because the encryption that they use can typically be broken um by a password cracking machine. I think it's somewhere between two and eight hours to just basically break your encryption entirely. Uh, and once they've broken the encryption it's for the the entire session. So yeah, try and steer clear of uh, PPTP unless you literally have no other way of doing encryption. Yeah. Um ironically probably If you don't want to use uh, OpenVPN or IPsec uh, because of it not being necessarily allowed through your network, one of the things you could look at using is actually Tor. Tor is um, an encrypted network overlay where the host names that you are addressing are actually the cryptographic key of the node that you're trying to connect to, so I think the address space for the current version of Tor hostnames is actually larger than the IPv6 address space. So that's quite nice. I I seem to recall that anyway. I might be wrong. It's definitely larger than the IPv4 address space anyway. And Tor will let you protect your local node. So if you're running uh, like an SSH service on your home server, on your remote machine, you can only permit people that have got a specific password from accessing even the service on your Tor node. But you still got Tor running. So I was playing a couple of years ago with Home Assistant, uh, which is a um, Internet of Things technology orchestrator, I think is probably the best way of describing it. And one of the how-tos on that is exposing your Home Assistant interface to Tor, in such a way that it only allows people that have got the password to access your Tor node to actually even see the web interface. So that's quite nice. But yeah, so I mean, there's a lot, uh, frankly, there's lots of options around accessing your home network. I think if you don't mind the speed, then, and you've got, you want to have multiple platforms Addressing it, OpenVPN is a strong contender because everyone knows OpenVPN. I think Tor is possibly overkill, but depending on how much difficulty you have accessing that that network, it might be good. Paranoid system administrators will struggle if they see Tor traffic in your in their network. Don't use Tor in oppressive regimes like China because that tends to not go down very well i think the term rubber hose cryptography tends to come into play at that point uh there's an xkcd for that i'll dig that one out but yeah there's lots of options again have i have i missed anything have i gone on too much nope that's fine i think that's about there i think there's one other thing that's in the list of of items jerry it's one of your items
2: oh is it uh fai yeah so FAI is an independently developed system for automated installation, mainly of Debian based OS's. The config is a code base of sorts. It's, it's in, it's a set of bash scripts, um, basically, uh, and it's very modular. So you have, for instance, a part of the install that does the, the, the partitioning of the disk uh, called the disk config. Uh, a part of the install to do, to run scripts on the OS, uh, a part to install the OS itself. So the, the standard Debian way, the Debian blessed way of installing an OS onto a server is by using something called Preseed. And this is basically an answer file for the Debian installer, which anyone who's installed Debian will probably be familiar with the Debian installer. It hasn't changed much in the past, probably 20 years or so, 15-20 years maybe, the place I was working at, I was using pre-seed, I, I never saw a pre-seed file that was less than 500 lines so base, that that really means that it's easy to break um, you know, sometimes one wrong line or one line in the wrong place can cause the entire install to fail which can be frustrating when you're trying to <laughs> trying to get things done and if, if a, the install does fail during that process you get a very limited shell environment called BusyBox um, which is a very kind of limited shell environment basically in my opinion it's got the worst partitioning tool config ever there's a, a tool called Partman um, which has got a very hard to understand syntax <laughs> um, and things like you, you have to put a, a full stop or a decimal point at the end of a line to make sure that the line runs otherwise it doesn't work yeah, so that leads to a very long development cycle. And also, it takes a, a long time to install Debian from scratch. It could take 15 to 20 minutes in in some cases, I've seen. Um And also, there's no easy way to set up a, a Pixie environment. So, uh, an environment where you basically turn on uh, the machine... It contacts the network and then it gets its configuration from the network and starts installing. There isn't an easy way of doing that with uh, preseed. Uh, so FAI addresses a lot of those things. The configuration is uses classes, so each host name or group of those names you can use um, globbing to so you have say node zero one, node zero two, node zero three, and so on. You can Assign those a class and those classes go into the, the idea of the disk config. So a, a node with a certain name can have a certain disk config, can have certain packages and can have certain scripts run. The whole thing, as I said, is written in bash, which means for your, your standards. Linux admin, it's easy to debug if, so, if something's going wrong, it's quite easy to tell where it's going wrong because it's all bash scripts I think there's some Perl in there but I never had to in- interact with that side of it um, if something does go wrong during the install you've got a full shell environment because it's basically um, mounting the OS over NFS, the whole uh, a, a kind of stripped down Debian OS but still a full OS uh, and then it uses Chroot to build the OS itself. Um, so if that step fails, you're in a full Linux system, as far as it's been installed anyway. The um, the bit that it installs the actual OS is fairly bulletproof. It, the kind of customizations come in the scripts that, that get run after the OS install is done. So any problems there tend to be either with disk config or the, the scripts that you're running. It's got built-in tools to easily configure Pixie, and it's got an option of running DHCP on the box where you're running FAI, and then you can really configure the whole lot in in one place. It's got a way of generating USB key uh, for for an offline install, so you can get your config correct, stick all the data on the USB key, plug the USB key, and it boots into FAI. Uh, and you can install your os that way uh uh the disk config stuff the partitioning stuff is much easier to understand and very sort of um you know it's, it's sort of 10 or 15 lines generally for a disk config rather than effectively hundreds for part man you can you can preserve partitions um when you build the os uh, so it's these like, it's like we're talking only about having persistent volume. <laughs> you can basically blow away the OS underneath it and reattach it later on. Uh, that's kind of built in. You can define RAID partitions, encrypted partitions, and uh, w- last place I was working, we were using it, and uh, installs were generally taking about five minutes. The reason reason for that being that you you have it like a tar file. Uh, of the base OS. So that's something you have to build in advance, but you can easily do that using uh, Deb Bootstrap to pre-build this um, tar file, um, and then zip it all up and just have the tar file. So that's the main reason for the speed increase. Um, you're, you're not building the whole thing from scratch. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much it for FAI. It's something I use, I first used it um, probably... six or seven, eight years ago, something like that. So it's been around for a long time. It's still being developed, um, which is good uh, for an open source project. Things that can be done, other things that can be done other than bare metal installs are uh, build base images for cloud VMs. You can uh, use as a base OS for Docker or Docker Swarm Kubernetes, as I was mentioning offline installs. And I did see... In the documentation, you can use it with CentOS, I guess CentOS, Red Hat, Fedora, but I'll, although I've never done that myself, so definitely worth looking at FAI. Um, there'll be a link in the show notes.
1: Sounds really interesting, actually. Mm. So is it predominantly for large machine deployments, or would you use it for sort of two, three, four machines as well, or is it is it kind of like a halfway house between the two? Would you only really would you use it for? like tens of machines rather than ones rather than hundreds.
2: Well, we were using it for kind of single machines, the place where I was working, but anything that you're building uh, through, through Pixie kind of environment, I I would use it. Assuming you're using Debian as I haven't experienced, experimented with CentOS.
1: And you mentioned about the USB stick installer. Um, Does that, does that effectively bypass the Pixie boot, but still use the rest of the environment as well?
2: Yeah, yeah. So that, I, again, I haven't experimented with it really, but um, the idea is that you use the boot system of the machine to get you into the environment, the FAI environment, and then in- install from there. All right, okay. So, I mean, effectively with Pixie, you're you're doing it over the network rather than um, hmm. with a physical medium sort of thing.
1: That sounds really interesting.
2: I mean, the only reason I haven't looked at it much since then was I'd, I've just been working with um, either Kubernetes or cloud providers where you've already got the the image. Yeah, but yeah, I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, kind of if you're in the more in the VM world than the container world, probably.
1: Fair enough. All right. Well, thanks very much for telling us about that, Jerry. That's, uh, that's one to go, one to go and add to the talkback.
2: I've be, I've been meaning to uh, talk about it for ages, but for one reason or another. I haven't managed it, so.
1: Was it was it you using this in the same place where you were doing the uh, the Debian package installs as well, or is that something else?
2: Yeah, yeah, that was the one. Yeah,
1: yeah. So you have been you have been using it for quite a while then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think I think we might actually be nearly at the end of the show. Yay! <laughs> has has been a little longer on this one, but as as uh, as Al said, we, we've been a while since the last last time we did one of these, so. Uh, so yeah, let's, uh, let's start our normal, our normal close down. So I, I would like to thank Dave, Dave Lee, uh, who does our amazing audio production. He's a, a lovely guy and, uh, and, and just knocks it out of the park every time with these. So thank you very much, Dave.
2: I was just going to look at the Patreon list to make sure that it was up to date. <laughs> okay. So we've got Andalmo, uh, Andy, Dave, Maha, Mike. Stuart and Yannick, they are our lovely patrons uh, on Patreon. Go to patreon.com if you fancy also being a patron. Uh, you guys are awesome, you give us money every month. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very,
1: very much, guys. So, yeah, so as well as uh, having our amazing set of Patreons or patrons. Um, you could also contact us uh, and leave us feedback uh, you can contact us uh, via mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk uh, or you may wish to join our telegram group there's uh, going to be a, a link in the show notes and also you can find the link on the contact page on the website
0: ok well I think we're just about there then so for, uh, until we all speak to you soon it's bye from Al
1: and it's bye from John
2: and it's bye from Jerry.
1: goodbye
0: Now it's over I can open any door Now it's over